0: to order um, Alec Bemis I appreciate you joining me today um, I've known you probably you're one of the first people in the music scene I think I met out of grad school actually um, and you were the first person I ever heard just talk about record labels and things like that and I was like fresh out of grad school I'm like I don't know any of this stuff and I remember meeting with you in the So Guys some at some cafe or a bar or something and I just remember sitting there being totally lost the whole yeah. time
1: were you were you a late? Because I always and I always think of Eric as being the new guy in So Percussion because I think he changed, he swapped in like after I knew the group. Yeah, because yeah, and. Um, were you also a new guy at one point? I mean, everyone was a
0: new guy at some point, but you were. were I was you a D? new. I joined in 2006, and that was about the time where I think, like, Amid the Noise was starting to be talked about being released by Cantaloupe. And yep. um, I was joining the group when that record, I wasn't on that record. And so it was sort of like that's what we were all talking about. And so that was my first foray into the. Into, into just that world in general.
1: Um, amid the noise was not me that, but I, I think it was new when I took over cantaloupe, like right. it was 2008, 2009. So that, that makes sense. Yeah. You were like two or three years into like,
0: what? <laughs> like, well, and I'm still quite frankly, I, I don't know whether that conversation like about record labels, like just, Flipped a switch in my brain where I was like, "Well, I'm not even going to try to understand this because I still, quite frankly, don't understand any of it." <laughs> and how the good I, thing how
1: is how record labels it. don't really understand what's going on either. Oh, yeah. To be honest, like it's it's been a wild decade or so in the music to be in the music industry. It's like it's like if people, if, it's like if you went from like we're going from hardcovers and paperback books to just like we beam ideas into your mind. You know, it's like right. the format switch has been so dramatic that. Yeah, it's it's tailspinny always.
0: Well, let me I mean before we get into that because I think a lot of the the stuff I'm curious to talk to you about today sort of um I mean we we initially were like we should do a podcast just to sort of <clears> chat <throat> about stuff that was going on with Spotify and Joe Rogan yep. and Neil Young and stuff like that and I want to I, I would love to chat with you about that just to get your thoughts but um can can you just tell me a little bit about about you like what got you into interested in the sort of Record label. Like, I don't even want to assume that that was like your primary yeah. goal of like, this is what Alec wants, baby Alec wanted to do as a kid, you know?
1: I mean, it all kind of came out of a, a zine I did in high school. So, oh God, I was probably 15, 16, 17. Mm-hmm. Um, a zine called Jaboni Youth, which thankfully was pre internet. So, you can't, you could kind of occasionally find a cover. Mm-hmm. on the internet
0: but the, the contents do not live there when you say and, zine uh, i don't like like that's just a term that i think i know what it is because i remember fanzine
1: you know like it was a music fanzine so that was kind of my entrance into like music scenes mm-hmm. um and at the time people would basically trade it was a, basically like a pre-internet way of communicating in a social media but more challenging like the, the barriers to entry were more difficult because you literally had to figure out like Where am I going to photocopy this thing? Who am I going to send it to? Who's going to review it so more people discover it? Like it was all, it was like a male thing. And I wouldn't say it was male art because it wasn't art. It was much more like enthusiastic, you know, teens and 20 somethings. Um, But uh, yeah, so it was like the zine world. It's a world that like people still talk about zines, but I find it almost absurd. It like, I think they mostly are relevant now and almost like an art context like a poetry chapbook or something i did an edition of 100 and it's handmade and you can't get it online and i'm as someone that's a much more of a communicator mm-hmm. rather than like an exclusivity gatekeeper like i want i work with a lot of weird music i would say so percussion is fairly weird music but like my vibe is like everyone should hear this because it'll blow their minds not like i want this to win a MacArthur or I want this to win a thing, or I want this in a biennial. Great. If that happens too, but it's more like exposing interesting ideas to as many people as possible, pointless on the internet, pre-internet in 1996, 95. Um, it was just a way of communicating to people. And I, there was actually a version of Brassland that existed alongside that zine. Like I think even before I went to college, um, and I, we kind of rebooted and grabbed the name when Bryce and Aaron Desner and I started the label to put out the first National and Clogs record.
0: Got it. Okay. Um,
1: so I guess that was my entree to the. That was my entree to publishing. I I actually tried to get a music industry job, like when I got out of college in 1998. And it was at a time there was like a major label merger. So it seemed like the worst time ever. And I also didn't quite have enough money to like do the free internship thing, which was still a thing back then. So I guess I, we sort of started our own thing a couple of years after that. And I've dipped in and out of being part of like the music industry. I don't know what I have to do with the music industry, but I do know like what people have to do to get more people to hear them and to try to put themselves out there. So it's, it's related, but it's different. I'd say I'm part of, like, the DIY music industry.
0: Well, what what in particular – I mean, when I think about – and again, I'm, I'm not – if there's anything I've, I've, I'm getting wrong here in terms of what I'm diagnosing of what you do, like, there's a different mindset that comes – that you have to have that an artist doesn't nece- – isn't required necessarily to think about when they're making music. So percussion, for example, we make – I mean the noise or we make a where we live or a gun show or these things and we're not necessarily it's not always good for the art to think about oh will people like this will people listen to this how do we get people you know that's not a mindset we're in but like for you how do? I'm just really curious like how do you see something like so percussion and you're like all right, we can make this work
1: (laughs) (laughs) or something or like
0: Clearly, very few people will like this in the way that mass media likes things where it sort of gains momentum and there's a tipping point and all of a sudden everybody knows about it. But like Eminem, Eminem for example, was that a long time ago, but now he's on the what? halftime show, you know, like it sort of like so how do you, how do you navigate the like, OK, right now? the ecosystem is not set up where this is going to be absorbed in the way that I want it to. So how do you first start teasing out? Like what's the first email you send? How do you get your mind wrapped around how to sell this then to somebody else?
1: I mean, I think, well, I, I mean, you did point out the mindset of like, you cannot think of the reception that much when you're an artist making a thing. And I don't know if record labels, you kind of like, we kind of can't go down too far. Each other's respective rabbit holes. You essentially have to come from like, I completely love this. I completely am focused on this. I can completely communicate this. And I think a record label has to start from like, no one's going to get this. No one has any information on this. No one has any idea why they're playing, you know, doing this. What is the most basic point of connection to like the world? Um, And I think that there's a sort of sad, but real, there's always just going to be a different mindset between the making the thing and the selling the thing in terms of, you know, when I say I'm part of like a DIY music scene, I'm not really a big part of that community. So I'm not actually looking for what's going to hit the widest group of people. It's more like in this community that I'm part of, what do I think can communicate with other subcultures that are out there or be an interesting or legitimate contribution to those subcultures? I think if I've had a challenge as someone working in music is I I actually think I tend to be a little ahead of things, um, like ahead of what's going to be. And I'm not saying this as like, I'm so great. I'm seeing the future. This person's going to be Eminem. It's more like, this is a very weird peculiar thing as a listener that I don't know if I've heard this specific thing ever before. And it almost doesn't fit into any scene and that's why I like it. And that actually becomes a bit of a problem, um, marketing wise. What I say when I'm searching for things is like, this is my uh, boilerplate is if, if it isn't more popular five years from when I put it out, then there's a problem there. But that's a very peculiar problem that I've kind of set myself up to exist within. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, what I mean, the thing, the thing that sort of a bell went off when you were talking about the, about community, and that's such a, like, that word is often used as a, like, uh, just a buzzword to, to, to sort of talk about look at this thing that we're all a part of and yeah. the longer I'm part of different scenes within the music scene you know just using my experience with So like I think it's dawning on me how much folks like you have had a hand in sort of um, yeah in, in putting together weird communities like the, the idea that So Percussion would ever play on you know uh, all tomorrow's parties festival Yep. yeah You know, like maybe we we wouldn't say like, oh, that was a direct result of Alec getting us that gig. But it was a result of us being put in the room with people like Puke and Gase, you know, seven years prior to that.
1: Yeah. I actually worked for Alturo's parties for a couple of years as like a consult, like when they did the My Bloody Valentine upstate, Mm -hmm. I was working with them. Officially, I was working with the record label, but very chaotic organization. If if anyone watching this doesn't know, I don't know if you do show notes, but there's an amazing oral history of all tomorrow's parties that Vice did about a year ago. It was Uh, a, let's not try to unpack all tomorrow's parties. I don't even know how much you saw, but it was a pretty wild, uh, wild thing. Yeah. I mean, in terms of your question, like I don't think I started off thinking of myself as like a community organizer. Um, Mm -hmm. But that idea has a real resonance with me. Like, look, I mean, this is not the most lucrative profession that I could have chosen. And when I think, like, oh, uh, what should I have done? Like, part of me thinks community organizer. And I'm like, yeah, that's actually probably worse. Like, I probably would be really broke then. I also think of things like even like a developer. You know, like, at, how long have you been out of Brooklyn? Because you live in Connecticut now, or you live oh, I the used state? to live in
0: Connecticut. I moved, I live in Manhattan now. Oh wow! Okay, big big my change. Wife, <laughs> my wife just got a job uh, near Gramercy Park, so I live on uh, near Gramercy Park now. So, well, but and
1: were you ever a Brooklyn guy?
0: Like, I never lived in Brooklyn. I lived in uh, in Inwood for a few years. I lived in Harlem. Then I moved to Philadelphia for two years. Then back to Scarsdale, which is in Westchester, and yep. then up to Connecticut. Now I'm back in Manhattan. So I've kind of bounced around a bunch.
1: I guess I bring up the idea of like a developer, like seeing in Brooklyn, like it being done well and it being done really poorly. Mm-hmm. I just think. I'm not like, yeah, the cult of the individual like kind of bums me out. And I feel like just thinking about how groups of people interact is fun and interesting. And I'd say like healthier in in the music world. It's a healthier way of thinking of things. Because when you do see like one ego get too much power, like everyone just kind of walks around like, oh, you know, like Mm – and some people are good at it and very generous. Some are not. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I'm really answering a question. So well, much i don't just saying know that, that I,
0: yeah, I don't know that I asked the greatest question either. I would, I would like for me like what now? Now looking back, I mean, I've been in the group for 16 years. So 16 years after that first meeting with you, I would say the thing like I've I've clocked a few changes in the way the culture sort of looks at different. You know, it was a little bit more. Segregated. When I first joined the group, there was sort of like world music stuff happens here, new music stuff happens here. Bucanase is clearly in this corner, and then Aaron and Bryce Desner are there in the national. And every once in a while, they you know you see the clogs on a thing, and it's like. But there was there was a lot of coexistence. But where the Venn diagram, there was very little overlap in the Venn diagram from my perception. But I feel like with bands like or record labels like Matador, Brassland there have been over time with the sort of cross-pollination of all these artists, I feel like the Venn diagrams are overlapped in a way that's a little less confrontational, a little less defensive of like, you know, Matt is on Matador and this band's on Brassland, and there, the two shall meet. And it's like, that kind of blew up. And I don't know, there wasn't like a date where it blew up. It just sort of slowly. I think part of it's, I do think part of it's. Yeah. Am I misdiagnosing anything there?
1: I think part of it's the internet. We're like, there's famously, not famously, actually, because people don't know about it, but um, th- there's a, a, a playlist ecosystem on Spotify that's like genreless, all about quality. There's a thing called Pollen, a thing called Lorem, and they're very much for like the millennial youth or whatever, Gen Z, I don't know what generation we're on, whatever kids are like 16 to 30-ish now and literally don't care what genre something comes from. I mean, I think you, you think about the Grammys and you have Justin Bieber complaining he wasn't nominated nominated as an R&B performer and Tyler, the creator, complaining that he was nominated under the rap category. Like, I think the internet has kind of dissolved those boundaries a lot. I think, you know, if we do turn around to Spotify, one of the fascinating things is like clogs are one of our more consistently successful groups on that platform because they've fallen, a couple of their releases fall into the ambient kind of sit back and study Mm -hmm. ecosystem of playlists And, you know, on the downside, I think a lot of people that are listening to that music have literally no idea the name, the title. They have no context on the music they're listening to. It's more like chill out radio. Let's go. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that's blended things a little bit. I think, frankly, there's so much competition now. I mean, you've probably heard the like 60,000 tracks are released each day or each week to Spotify. I think people are less... People don't think, oh, I can get on the top of that dog pile. It's more like in my community, we can sort of lift each other up and be part of this little scene that people will pay attention to. I always find it fascinating to go on Spotify and be like, so percussion will align with Nico Muley, will align with Aaron Desider's solo ambient soundtrack, like in terms of artists you also listen to. And it can be annoying. Sometimes it's, it seems more like it, it's a timestamp from this moment in time where like someone was 30 and they were still open to new music and they listened to those five artists all together and they they've stopped bringing in the new, but um, yeah, I like to think that the community thing, the people that you're connected to geographically or through collaboration is almost more important than like winning some overall game mm-hmm. now.
0: Well, I, I think know. that's something that, no, I mean, I think, that's, I mean, we think, it. so thinks a lot about collaboration and I, and just like what that means and the different versions of that between Buke and Gase and Shara, you know, Shara Nova and Caroline Shaw yeah. and like how all those three things are differently and uniquely chaotic, but the emergent phenomenon that comes out of those somehow when you squint at all of them is like, okay, yeah, that all, that, of course, that makes sense that that <laughs> one would have come out of that collab. And I'm curious for you as a, just a, just a question, is there any, is there anything that you wish you could go back and be like, man, if I'd have just, if you could go back and change one thing about the way you were seeing the scene and sort of your efforts, you know, like, okay, this is where the bleeding is most. And I'm, I'm going to plug that hole and try to fix that artery. So that the body politic can sort of help be healthier. Is there any bleeding you wish you would have tended to more 16 years ago that, that now like you're, you're really having to tend to, and I, I that's not a loaded question. I'm not looking for you to be like, well, I fucked this up and I'm really sorry. But like,
1: now yeah, that uh, you know, literature. I mean, whatever, I think running a record label is essentially like staunching bleeding constantly and like little <laughs> crises you're trying to overcome or like running a record label you know, is
0: like cutting an artery open and then being like, why is everything bleeding?
1: You know, you make a plan, like a marketing plan or release plan, but it's like if things don't do well critically or if it doesn't get picked up on a Spotify playlist or if your vinyl turn times go from like three to four months to 12 to 18 months, which is something that happened during the pandemic. It's like you just kind of deal with it. I mean, the things that I regret about the label are not really artist specific or like, I should have worked with this person. Mm -hmm. I definitely wish I I did not come from a business background. Like my mother was an art teacher for like elementary school kids, a single parent family. I was not from a businessy family. So I didn't necessarily understand the importance of like, locking down intellectual property rights in a very specific way, or even the uses of capital of like, you know, literally money. We did, we did not start with very much money at all. And I actually sort of suspect if we did start with more money, it would have ended a lot quicker. Um, you know, it would have been like we would have burned through some wealthier person's 30,000, 50,000, a hundred thousand dollars. And like not had a blow up success because of the phenomenon of like, if things aren't doing better in five years, I probably shouldn't be working on it. Like the national were very much late bloomers. It's kind of left the narrative about that band, but took a long time for them to start making money. And now they consistently do. Um, But what I I don't know, I might've, if I had the same skills as I have now, and it was 20 years ago, I would have figured out how to have more money and known how to manage it. I mean, I had a chance to like, Sign like Regina Spektor, like not. I don't know if I actually had a chance, but I was like in the same room when like five major labels were trying to sign her, um, mm-hmm. and I might have tried to get the rights on an early record. There was a there's an Argentine Argentinian artist named Juana Molina that I was kind of going for, and and you know like had a real shot and didn't didn't really know like what to offer, how to de- how to compete. So there are a couple artists and moments, mm-hmm. um, but I'm.
0: Well, the the business side of what you mentioned, I think, is is, it's the thing that I just keep with my own students, whether it be whether it be whether whether it whether you're running a record label or trying to be a performer, you know, whatever, like the business side of things often is the thing that we're the weakest at. Like it's not you don't study how to manage cash flow when you're in a grad school. You don't study what credit card interest is. You don't learn about what a what a you know what interest is <laughs> you know nobody teaches i don't know i mean I,
1: I think basic financial literacy is an issue in the whole all of america i mean whatever we could get into crypto and like understanding what the hell is going on there or, like i i i've actually become fascinated by money like i've actually read a bunch of books on it there's a book called end of money that i read you know pre-crypto there's this uh, writer lawrence westler that has a book uh, I, it's something about this guy boggs is the name he's an artist that would draw perfect counterfeits of currency and then sell the artwork at the face value of the currency, but not say it was currency. And he got, you know, pursued by all these governments who like didn't really like him messing around with the concept of fiat currency all that much. So pre-crypto I've been quite interested in it. And, um, but yeah, counting's a different thing. Um, I do think I did take maybe – 2002, 2003, a couple of years into the label, I took an accounting extension class at UCLA. I did not do well. I believe I, I flunked out mostly because I wasn't doing the homework. Like I was literally just in it for the skills and the ideas rather than to get a good grade because I wanted to be a CPA. But, um, yeah, there's something to be said for figuring out how to teach artists that that was probably the closest I had to a boot camp. Didn't, are they doing that? You sort of teach you know. in conservatories a little bit,
0: right? Well, I teach at NYU and down at Princeton, and um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, and, I, and I keep going back and forth between, like, what's the chicken or the egg? I mean, I now, I now know what accrual-based accounting is. I didn't know yep. that yep. really until, like, five years ago. Yep. And I had to manage those books for the 10 years leading up to that. And I'm just like, pretending like I know what I'm doing, you know. Um, but I think... What I'm hearing from you too is that there is something to getting your your like artistic ducks in a row like what money can do sometimes is exacerbate the weaknesses in your approach and so if you have money way too early like if so percussion had somebody yeah. dropped three million dollars in collapse yeah. in two thousand nine we probably wouldn't be here
1: yeah. yeah now if you got that money you would know to be like okay this is' this is actually endowment level, and first of all we should maybe figure out. Okay, wait, we could have a paycheck for all of us without having to fundraise forever. We could possibly do some like we could just buy a building or give grants to young artists, or we could set up some kind of system where it like that money renews and but, but for twenty years, years we could offer kids right. without diluting the Yeah, totally.
0: But but the point is is that we also like I'm confident holding that three million dollars because the other side of us the work side of us the one that makes the art which theoretically gets people interested in us and helps keep people donating to the organization is that we're good <laughs> you know we spent a lot we spent the bulk of our early te- decades just, just playing pumping it humping it and humping it now yes everybody's got to pay the bills and you should you should try to fight for what you're worth and yes try not to play for free if you can avoid it and if someone's taking advantage of you acknowledge that and whatever but if you can't play consistently on stage enough to where concert halls are like, yeah, these guys are consistently good. Let's have them back. Like, I'm sorry. You're not going to like, that's just not going to, I think it's funny. I do think, well,
1: there's also, you know, I work with pop somewhat pop music and then I work with, you know, some classical music on the side. I'm not, we're not new Amsterdam. You know, we're not like exclusively looking in a sort of area of work. It's sort of wherever it comes from. I mean, you just did a thing with, uh, uh Ra-Ra Gabor who we put on this EP yep. with can yep. gaze and like literally she was a school teacher you know it's like literally from the street music incredible like you know I don't know if no diss to say I don't know if she's Eminem but like it did remind me a lot there's an artist that I saw um early in my career in music uh, called Matsiyahu, this like Hasidic rapper who went from like seeing him in a 50 person room in the knitting factory to getting offered to open for Madonna and seeing Ra Gabor it's like it's that kind of thing. It's like, where did this come from? There is a place for this. But I'm somewhat losing my, my point of view. When I first saw you guys in 2009, I was like, oh, my God. Like, these guys are so good and so solicitous to the audience and, like, really bringing people into this fairly abstract music. I think the idea of virtuosity and having a great show in your world is very different than in the pop punk, weird, underground, scrappy, because mm-hmm. sometimes the chaoticness, mm-hmm. the chaos of it, I mean, early Buke and Gaze, the best shows were like sweaty, strange room, mm-hmm. people surrounding them. But yeah, there is a, it is good to perfect your art before money and investment comes in. I think that's always been a belief of mine. Yeah. Um,
0: Well, the perfection thing is that that's – like there's that moment of like in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom where he's got the bag of sand and the gold idol, right? And he's got to swap it off. And it's like there's a point at which – like the reason Buke and Gaze has their stage show is so like tight and that they can deal is because like you said, they've been in a thousand – Other bands before, totally. And with bad sound people who the sound check went terrible and they've had to just – take all those punches in the live show and pretend like it was perfect because that's what their audience wants, right? And not let on that, you know, and they just have, it's the same with the Beatles. Like everybody thinks about like all oh, the Beatles like, yeah, they played like eight shows yeah, a day, eight in billion in shows. you know, like yeah. where nobody was, they were playing covers and they just got good at doing the, you know, you watch them on Ed Sullivan. You know why? As soon as the last drum hit hit the, the last note of the piece, they all unplug and bow. It's because they'd done that 3000 times in Hamburg because it was a festival. They had to get the fuck off the stage. Like, you know, like this is, you're watching in real time not a one-off. It's, it is a result of thousands of at-bats and just getting up and doing it. And I I just like, when people look at the Beatles, they're like, oh, they're geniuses. It's like, e, e, maybe? They yeah, well, they like swung the bat a million times. Like, the the 10,000
1: hours thing. I mean, yeah, yeah. actually, thinking about like, working with so percussion, I mean, what I liked... When I have worked with classical stuff, or like are you classical? Do you even refer to it at this point? Is it contemporary music, I guess, is like but then I, it's like are we Cardi gotten, B? Like it's very we've confusing.
0: Gotten into the mindset of saying experimental music. That yeah. has been okay. the most encompassing mm-hmm. of what it is we do. And I think it's it, it is a wide enough umbrella that it sort of scoops up most every but everything that we do. Well it's also
1: like you want to describe what you're doing, but you don't want to, again, if you say contemporary music, someone might be like Cardi B, like you mean the stuff that's on the charts, contemporary, like,
0: or, or they might be like Stockhausen, you know, there might be some nerd that's going
1: to go. Interesting. Well, in the boop, classical boop, boop. world, I guess they might, that's what contemporary might mean. It's like anything in the 20th century, basically. Right. right. If you say um,
0: avant-garde, most people are going to think John it's Cage be a- or, you know, some weird, something weird, you know, and, So experimental has sort of been a bed that we're willing to lay in right now.
1: I've sort of actually been owning experimental, but as I was working on this Raw Ruggavor, Bukin Gase collaborative release, there is a whole lane of like alternative hip hop, not really experimental hip hop. They don't really use that phrase, but um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, it's all the same. It's like, or indie hip hop or something like that. Progressive is actually a word that's getting used a lot um, in the R&B context now. I like that word well, Talking um, with
0: Rara too, about her approach. And again, like I had only, I only know of her, word, just knew an edge of what, yeah, what you had said to me. And so, so I, I tried to put it in context for myself as much as I could, but like, there's one track where she had used a very extended sample of Muhammad Ali. And I was hearing all these, like, because of the references I have with like the books and some other things I was like, wow, this is like, but it was a completely new thing. Like it wasn't, it wasn't the books it wasn't a derivative thing it was just sort of like oh whoa what's happening here and it was it's really unique and and so talking with her about that and and i don't know if she has a reference to the books but it's just it's fascinating to me that there's all these things that are sort of
1: yeah there's a there's a big blender going on in culture right now i mean i think um speaking about, so I think I've consistently wanted to work with like experimental or progressive in some way, however you define it, music. But then the, the X factor is that I also like the artists to be it's communication. It's like, how do you touch the audience? And I remember seeing you early on, I think it was a Matmos show somewhere, Matmos and so percussion. And I was like, yeah, they're playing cactus on stage, but they're not, but they're sort of making jokes about it and they're engaging about it. And they're like, they're inviting the audience in. and You know, we did uh, Nico Muley's second record uh, in the States. It was a license from Bedroom Community who are really like his most consistent label, these Icelandic folks. But it was almost just like, even the music is not super accessible unless you have certain context. But like Nico as a person is so like, he's such a mega communicator. And I think that's been a big through line in what we've done. It's like, how can you weigh the inaccessibility and the unfamiliarity of progressive and experimental music with inviting people in and saying, I want an audience for this, you know, a performer, like having that vibe. And I'd say that's the, sometimes that makes us less cool. You know, we don't, I try not to put out things where like, there's no photograph of the artist. You don't know where he lives. He only responds to interviews on Twitter DMs. Like I, I even like, I'm literally referring to a specific artist named zombie who I'm a fan of, who's kind of disappeared in the last couple of years or Apex twin is maybe the more known version of that. But like, I've never had a super interest in working with that. So I'm kind of like, this is, this game can't go on forever and it's sort of more trouble.
0: Well, as long as, kind of I approach. mean, the thing as long as you're willing to accept the consequences of that approach and it seems like Apex twin and I don't know zombie. is that okay. So, if you're but. okay with, if you're just okay with that, then great. You know, it's the, it's the artists who are, like, not involved with getting their word out and are confrontational on stage who then go back and wonder, like, why isn't anybody like me? It's like, well, okay, hold up a second. It's because yeah. you walk on stage and you're pompous, you know, about what it is you're doing and you're pissed that the audience doesn't get it. And I would say that so is, I mean, and I, maybe Nico, and there's the generation of folks, myself included, that just went to so many new music shows early on where there was this weird sense of, like, if you don't get it, it's because you don't you, you don't get it. Like there's something you're missing and it's not my job to convey to you any about anything about my personality, what I like, what I don't like. I'm here to be a vessel for the composer, which I, you know, I understand where that comes from. But I think so is just like if you like us as people first, it will be way easier to convince you to like John Cage later on If, if if it goes the other way. And that, if John Cage, if the litmus test is you like John Cage, then you're never going to get to know us because there's lots of John Cage's music I don't like, (laughs) you know?
1: I think there's a, I think there's a distribution dynamic to that too. I mean, I think a lot of the people, I mean, whatever, you know, we both are familiar with the bang on a can kind of folks, like they have a much better attitude towards bigger audiences than the generation that preceded them. And I think part of it was the opening up of distribution. Like, Bang in a Can is not for everybody, but at least with things like Bandcamp and Spotify, like their music is there for anyone that wants to get it and find it. You know, early on, the I think what defined the beginning of the Bang in a Can thing was like, ooh, to get our music out into like the stores, we need to get signed to Sony or some universal music. And these, for people who aren't aware, although I guess they will be, those are two major labels. And I think their first couple of releases were on like major label imprints, or Philip Glass briefly had a deal with Sony to put out other artists. And inevitably, those records would do badly, and inevitably, the artists would get dropped. And it was like, we're getting blocked from talking to people because we can't, because we won't sell 100,000 records. But like the 50,000 people that bought that record were really happy. And now you can kind of put things out so that you can reach those smaller niche audiences. And that's really been a technology and a distribution shift that's, that we've witnessed in our lifetimes. You know, um, I think that leads to a better attitude.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, let's, let's pivot a little bit into the Spotify thing, because this is there. Uh, one of the things that I've, I've just clocked, I mean, I was, I was patient zero for Napster. So I, I was in college yeah. in my dorm room at Ohio state when Napster was invented. And yeah. I remember plugging my ethernet cable into the wall and all of a sudden, Everybody who was on the network at Ohio State, I had access to everything they had on their computers. And yep. I just downloaded it and I was like, this is fucking bonkers. Like, what's going on here? And I was, like, making mixtapes and no no awareness of the ripples that was going to have. That
1: economy or the politic of it. or Yeah, it wasn't right.
0: a statement. And then Napster got shut down, and Lars Ulrich went hard in the paint, and everybody hated Lars Ulrich <laughs> for a second. And now I'm like, well, goddammit, if he wasn't right. You know, and – you know on some level just being so complicated but then now it's become more societally acceptable but I think what has happened is there's a like you look at the Beatles like they would make these albums that stood on their own the white album sergeant Pepper's revolver like that were works of art from start to finish, like you thought about every track in an order and blah 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 now Napster just blew that up I could just go get revolution number nine and if that's all i that's all if that's all the algorithm recommended to me, I would think that the Beatles were out of their goddamn mind. Although I think you know? you're, but it's, I, I think, I think it's a more, I, I think you're not undercrediting
1: Spotify. Like I don't, I don't think we were there. Maybe we were downloading hits off Napster, but I think the format switch has been in the last like six or seven or eight years with ubiquitous streaming. Cause back then it was like, yeah, you could find obscurities, but it was more likely to be like a weird live Beatles or Neil Young thing, then it would be some experimental like Mm -hmm. now everything's on an equal footing or like you'd have to be on the moment that the person that was into crazy Japanese noise music also happened to be on the network. Like there was even still a scarcity amongst about less popular things. And now it's literally just like totally flat. It's just, I've actually done mixes on Spotify. I actually just made one that was um, all Beatles covers of revolver, so it was like crazy, you know, Latin American panpipe band doing, you know, Yellow Submarine, or you know, like alt country artists doing, you know, and like I could literally just check the titles and be like, this is all the covers of this thing, and it's like that's never been a thing until now, and I don't think we've really gotten our head around like what what the musical environment is. I know the Nationals first manager I'm um, having a conversation with her in like 2014 15 16 when after was really or sorry when Spotify was really blowing up and becoming like the thing and she was like I just don't know how to listen to music anymore because I go in to listen to an album but then I'll like think of something else and it's just there for me and it's mm-hmm. I've kind of learned how to cope with the onslaught of not having to choose oh there's five three great indie records by bands I've loved for a long time coming out, which one do I listen to first? Like I, I have to do it in playlists to even just keep it in my memory. The whole phenomenon of like six records you should listen to this week or 26 tracks you should listen to today. Like that Brooklyn Vegan and NPR Music and Pitchfork do regularly. Like that was not a thing. Like just to focus people on the, like, so that they're not just tsunami by the onslaught of how much music they have access to now. Right. right. Yeah. Well,
0: what, what is the, um, I mean, the neg, what are the negatives of Spotify? I mean, I think in terms of what you're laying out in terms of how we digest music, I think there are lots of upsides. I was spelling out a downside earlier, but like there are lots of things that have been beneficial to us as individuals consuming music. Um, the pay per stream thing has been an issue that has Uh, You know, it's the first thing that comes up a lot and blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm curious, like what with the recent thing around Spotify, Joe Rogan, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, like when I think about the perception of like the control you have over your catalog, for example, like when I see that Neil, Neil Young pulls his catalog off. But only because Warner
1: Brothers played along
0: or whatever. Yeah. And also he got – he sold his catalog for $150 million. I
1: think his songwriting million. catalog, not his – I think it wasn't his recorded music, but still, yeah.
0: But regardless, there was less – it was less of a – it was less of a hit for him to pull his stuff off of Spotify. Oh, yeah. Him. I mean, yeah, so like, he's not wor- – I mean, he, yeah. But, but but that wasn't – I guess I, I'm not trying – no value judgment on Neil Young here, but that wasn't part of the narrative. Whenever it was like, I'm pulling my stuff out of Spotify, it's like, well, yeah, but you just got $150 million. Like, that would have made.
1: Well, the media has a very short attention span. So it's so, very hard for it to connect the dots yeah. between things. I mean, honestly, like, I've just been thinking because I, I wanted to make sure you didn't think. You're, you're like a Joe Rogan fan, right?
0: Well, I mean, I would say I don't I, listener uh, at well, least. Yeah, and, but I, this podcast, I started this podcast because I was listening to Joe Rogan when, during the first Trump election in 2015. Yep. I was like really personally distraught at the way people were talking to each other, my colleagues, my friends, my family. Um, yep. you know, and I just, I couldn't talk, like, I couldn't talk to anybody about like it was either everybody wore in my hometown was a racist and a bigot, or you were on this other team. And I was just like, that can't possibly be true. And I don't even know how to talk to my own bandmates, but I was hearing he
1: Joe. He was going down some middle way. Like you admired elements of how he, communicated with the world. And just to put out, I'm not, I've honestly not really listened to much Rogan. I've listened, I listened to the Elon episode and I think I listened to the Matt Iglesias who's like kind of like an urban planning wonk who was like, I can't believe I'm going on Joe Rogan. My obscure, you know, political policy book is getting covered by him. But honestly, what I liked about it was not that it was like taking down Joe Rogan so much as I liked, I liked that it showed that generation of artists could like make a political stand mm-hmm. however weird and like not totally consistent it was yeah. and put something on the table and like make a big impact like that alone, that as an example to show artists, like you do have power mm-hmm. is beautiful, I think. Um, so that's what I admired about it. You know, I don't, I'm actually much le- I, I have complicated feelings about Spotify, but I don't have negative
0: Mm. ones you know no, like I, just to be clear i don't either like i don't i don't have hate in my heart for spotify and the thing that has been driving me crazy is the and i guess i i don't i don't have a fully formed thought here but it it cuts to the core to me as an artist in general when i feel like there's these ultimatums being set up by other artists who are in very powerful positions to where the implication is like, I'm pulling this because I want this other person to go away. And if you, if you can keep all my stuff, if you just take this other person away or I'm taking it, I totally, we live in a free society, Neil, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, they have the absolute right to do that. But when it's sold a little bit as this, but I'm against, because I'm against this to me, that, that is a that's a that's a precedent that I, terrifies me to my bones because if there's somebody decides to look at a gun show that we did, yep, and they are a super super conservative politician, and we've decided over time that society is okay with just being like, oh well, we don't agree with this person because they're on the right. You don't think that's going to extend to the arts in some level? You don't like that? It has happened historically. Like you don't have to look that far to see that that is a road that we just legit uh, if you want to be ideologically consistent with going down that road, it never ends well. And I'm, that's, that was my main concern with the Neil, Neil Young, Spotify, Rogan thing. Is like, I've listened to Rogan for a long time. I don't espouse any of the views that now CNN, MSNBC, and the New York times says I supposedly now espouse because they've done the yeah. deep dive, dive on Rogan. And I'm like, I don't know what to say. Like I've listened to like 700 of his episodes yeah. over the last eight years and they're wrong. They're just wrong. Now, does he made mistakes? Sure. But well, he's also cop to them. He also admits to them and is willing to, you know, anyway, it's just, it's scary for me a little bit. I mean, if I have
1: complaints about, I wouldn't call it Spotify. I'd call it like the media environment at large. It's that it is so incredibly short attention span and it is so based around polarization and 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 sort of tribes that i i can't really find a home right. in any of it like i mean look this podcast your podcast will do worse because you're not unreasonable like you're obviously like have like fine sliced takes on things which is one reason i like listening to podcasts i actually do think people can have com- if you actually listen to a podcast it's rarely about the rare occasions where like a three sentence or a five word thing gets pulled out and turned into a headline on a website. Um, It really is about this fine slicing things. Um, But you know, podcasts I think are naturally niche media, generally speaking. I think the problem is how do you communicate something happening in niche media to mass media? And there's always going to be this messed up mistranslation. I mean, I think about this from like the point of view of art making. We worked, um, Brassland worked for a couple records with this band, People Get Ready, um, who was this, uh, built around the work of this choreographer, uh, Stephen Riker, who had been a dancer on David Burns, uh, a tour he did maybe, uh, like a decade ago. Um, uh, but, you know, also was like a downtown dance guy, like very integrated in that community. And they put on a great show, NPR music, uh, Bob Boylan, like one year was like, this is the best live show I've ever seen. I've seen this year. And he's someone that would go to like two or 300 shows a year at, uh, New York Live Arts. But then I would think like, I was I was fearful of the day that Pitchfork would review it and like literally just have like a gif length excerpt from it of like dudes playing guitars on their back being dragged. And it like it looks like a Portlandia skit. And like you could totally or an SNL sprocket (laughs) skit. Out of context,
0: it looks insane, right? Yeah.
1: Like I'm like, or you guys playing Cactus on stage. It's like. This can both be something that if you're in the room, this beautiful, immersive, unlikely, unexpected, twisting the expectation thing. But if you take it and short form it, it's going to seem absurd. And I think that's, that's unfortunately like what Joe Rogan is dealing with right now. If I don't, if there's reasons I don't have sympathy for him as opposed to his listeners, where I think it does put like a reasonable listener of his into this weird like you're on the racist side now you're on the anti-vax side now but you're like wait no I listened to it that's not the dominant but he's someone you have to almost kind of see this as like do you I don't I don't really watch marvel movies, movies except on planes and I haven't been on planes in a couple of years but like when you think of Joe Rogan and Neil Young battling you kind of have to think of like
0: Tony Stark you, and
1: yeah you have to think <laughs> yeah, of these yeah, planet yeah. destroyers fighting <laughs> and Neil Young's a little bit like dude, you have a huge audience and so do I. And this is my problem with how you're talking to your huge audience. Like they're not dealing on the same level as we are. So like, that's why I appreciated it. Cause like Neil Young, look, he's been making, he's been backing himself into this obscure corner for years. Like literally putting out like a half dozen archival records a year. And it's cool to see him use it. What is, what's the phrase? Like, occupying the space he commands again and like I appreciate it because I'm I'm probably more on the Neil Young side than I am on the Joe Rogan side but I also like I've met enough famous people at this point in my life that like and I've worked with enough quasi famous people that I'm like yeah I admire that person I would not want to work with them you know like Mm -hmm. like I don't find Neil Young like I find him to have had an enviable career, but not someone I'd want to be in the room with particularly, because it's just like all gravity would revolve around him. I think, frankly, I think there's a certain naivete in how Joe Rogan deals with things. I have a feeling Joe Rogan, what they used to say about the presidential election when, when George Bush won, like he's the kind of guy you'd want to get a beer with, you know, like, and Joe Rogan does actually seem like if he was in a room it wouldn't be this ego monster thing. Like he would engage with anyone. I get the, that feeling about him. And I think like, that's why I think he's been taken so like unawares and he's had to do these repeated apologies. I think, I think it maybe like weirdly like didn't occur to him that he had 11 million people listening to him. I'm sure someone in his business organization is taking full advantage of his following, but I, I almost get a bit of a, like a naive sense from him. Is that weird? Is that crazy no, no, for you uh, No,
0: not at all. I think that's – I. Th- well, and I think if you listen to Rogan long enough, everything you just said, he would absolutely say and has said almost verbatim. Like, yeah. And the thing that has driven me nuts about the coverage of him is they sort of make the podcast out to be this thing he wandered into. <laughs> and it's like, no, there was two other people doing it. Tom Green. Interesting. <laughs> and like one other person. And he was doing it in his basement on the internet on a like UStream thing. And it, but it was this, it was, he was one of the canaries in the mineshaft in 2006 or whenever this, when that podcast first
1: were born yeah. basically.
0: Yeah. And, but, and they sort of make it like, Oh, and then he parlayed that into this career as an MMA commentator. It's like, he's been a Taekwondo black belt since he was eight or however yeah. old, you know, he's been in martial arts his whole life. And then they're like, Oh, and he's a former comedian. It's like, Nope, he's a current comedian. And I think if you listen to his podcast, he would tell you he's a comedian first. Um, Mixed martial arts is something that is deep in his bones, like steel drumming is for me. You know, like if contemporary music is the thing that I do for my living, it's like steel drums is where my home is. Um, And then podcasting is the thing that he is the one thing that, at least early on, he didn't even have to care about. He could just, he was just sitting in his basement. And the podcast caught, and I think his personality caught up with him at the same time that the mat, people were getting disgusted with the mass media at the same time that that Donald Trump was lambasting the media and people were arguing and I think the the, attract, the, the attraction I had was that he was the one person who was willing to sit down and have a generous spirit with everybody yeah. and I just couldn't even though like I wanted to throw up the whole Alex Jones podcast because yeah. during the gun show I had to do a lot of research around Alex Jones. Yeah. I talked about him on stage, so I wasn't and about for to do people. That.
1: I, just, I, mean, I guess people probably are familiar with your work, the Gun Show, is the show that you did, essentially about gun violence and right. guns in America. And it was it bad? went to a lot of performing arts. It was kind of like right. an immersive right. piece.
0: Yeah, and I talked. We I specifically referenced Alex Jones on stage, and as an artist, ethically, I feel like if I'm going to do that, <laughs> I have to know exactly who I'm talking about. So I'm going to listen to Infowars. I'm going yep. to listen to. The podcast he did with Rogan because I want to know is there 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 is there any there there and the more I listened the more I was like oh this guy's just a lunatic like there there is no Alex there. Jones is just a lunatic Alex Jones yeah yeah there is no there there and and I think and then I went to talk like I did a podcast with Jill and Joyce Rousseau who lost their daughter Lauren Rousseau at Sandy Hook oh my i my going talk with them about Alex Jones and all of the stuff like they are people who have had a real impact on their life because of Alex Jones. And I just keep thinking about like all of these things. It's like the generosity spirit Joe has with Alex that he has with Neil DeGrasse Tyson that he has with Ben Shapiro that he has with Bernie Sanders. But is is your
1: take here? Let me just, is your take here on him having Alex Jones being a good thing is kind of like sunlight is the best disinfectant. Like anyone that listened to it wouldn't come out of the episode thinking like, I'm going to listen to more Alex Jones. They would co- Do you think other people would come away thinking this guy's a lunatic
0: I, as well? Genuinely, the older I get. And again, like I'm willing to accept that, that I'll change my mind on this. Like I'm not.
1: Yeah.
0: It's just something I've thought a lot about. And if you look at the trajectory of Alex Jones's career and put plot it on a timeline and look at where the lawsuits started and when he, he really started to lose the power he thought he had. Yep. And then drop the two plot points in where Rogan had him on his podcast. Interesting. And I would be willing to bet that you would see this precipitous decline afterwards. Not because everybody who listened to the podcast, all of a sudden, I just think the Zeitgeist started to absorb the fact that Alex Jones was out of his mind. And that I he was somebody you could take down. And he was he was somebody who was, there was nothing there. It's all crazy lunacy. And he's drunk. He's an alcoholic. Like, there's all these things that you don't know about Alex Jones unless, you're on, unless you watch him for those four painful hours on Rogan, you know? Interesting. Um, and, I, yeah, and so for me, I, I, am a, I think every politician should go on Joe Rogan. I think the Bernie Sanders interview was the first time anybody got Bernie Sanders into a corner where he said, I don't know. Interesting. Bernie has an answer for everything. What, what did he say not know? It was, it was, was, about, was, it was about gun was, control. In the U, in the U.S., because he and, has
1: the Vermont thing, and he has a more complicated
0: feelings about it than certain other. But they just point know. is, it's like for an hour and twenty minutes, he and Joe just drilled down and stuff, and they both got to the point where, like, oh, actually, I don't know what to do about this. That's a problem. And it's like you never hear politicians ever say that. You never heard Bernie ever say that. There's always an answer. And I mean, it, look, it, I it think it didn't make Bernie look bad. It was a like. Oh, he's a person too. Thank God, he's not just this old this is the thing. You know, Saruman figure who we all look up, or a uh, you know Gandalf who we all looked up to, who's got all these. This episodes.
1: is the thing. I I do think Joe Rogan's podcast will survive this. I think you know could this be a moment where it's his Alex Jones moment, where like he loses some power and influence because some people are thinking again of it? I think the biggest thing is that he is mainstream media now, and I don't think. He fully understands that. So it's like this is a maybe harsh way of him learning that like yeah. you're not the New York Times, but you're more like late night with Johnny Carson or, you, you know, you're a gatekeeper of some sort of like people's consciousness. In, whatever you put your lens on, you are like magnifying it by right. a million times. You know, and it, it's not just like looking at it at a magnifying glass, it's being broadcast through the other end of the microscope into this much larger platform. So maybe this is his harsh way Mm -hmm. of understanding that himself. I would say, look, this is like so wonky and it shows the accountant in me, but my problem with podcasts. And if I was all the people that are going for a penny a stream, like there's this or musicians union going to that, like I'm like literally do the math. I'm like how much subscriptions are to Spotify and how that would work. It won't work, you know, because does anyone want the return of like an iPhone plan where like if you use over one gig a month, you get charged $15 for every hundred? Like you don't want that. No one wants that. Um, and given the capacity of the network, it doesn't make sense. My problem is actually more about I, I really do not listen to podcasts on Spotify. I use other platforms because there's one pool of money that's being amortized for each subscriber, you know, based on the number of songs they play and the number of, Podcasts And essentially, if you spend more time listening to podcasts on Spotify, that's less going to musicians. And I don't think people really understand that. Like, that's the game that Spotify is playing. Like, how do we decrease the pool of money that we have to pay out to music rights because we don't have to – the payouts to to podcasts are different. And that bothers me because I'm sure that will have an effect on my bottom line – yeah and I so, think I, I think yeah Joe Rogan part is the, part of that is what annoys me. It's less his politic. It's more like they're taking away from music in general
0: here I would say the thing that you know if i if I was just calling balls and strikes on the way that the his podcast has sort of uh, manifested itself recently is the sort of misdiagnosis of what would happen is is what happens when you get paid one hundred million dollars for this thing that you've been relying on. YouTube streams, YouTube monetization based on the number of listeners. Per plays. Yeah. Yeah. And so there is a, your accountability. I actually personally don't feel like, I feel like, and maybe this is the capitalist in me or the conservative side of me. I feel like he's earned that hundred million dollars because of the last, you know, 12 years of work he's done. I don't generally feel like he has a new responsibility to me as a podcaster. I like, I generally feel like he's, he's done something to earn that on some level. I think fi- I think he's mis- misunderstood what that other people are going to graft that accountability onto him now because he now is getting paid hundred million dollars from an organization that. I, I actually do want to like say like this is another headline
1: thing like look he's got I'm sure he's getting plenty of money but whenever they announce these like hundred million dollar deals it's like mm-hmm. yeah well like did his studio get upgraded does he now have like research assistants like it's not like. He went to the bank one day and was like, "Here's a hundred million dollars." You know, like, is it a hundred million over ten years? Like, yeah. again, like he doesn't need sympathy financially anymore. He's doing yeah. just fine. But it's well, always like,
0: yeah, it's complicated. And like, he didn't, he didn't need sympathy prior to the to that deal either. Like, he was totally fine prior to that. And I and, and I from think it TV, speaks a, being on TV and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and it speaks. I think it speaks to the the Spotify model in general more than it does to anything he said on this podcast. I think when one figure all of a sudden gets a hundred million dollars and every artist is still getting a check for three dollars and twenty seven cents, that resentment's natural. People are going to there's be a like, there's a real <laughs> bad
1: re- there's a real inability to read the room that I think Spotify has going on. I mean, I, I don't know if you heard about the. I haven't looked into the details, but like a couple of days ago, the $320 million sponsorship of like, I think it was Real Madrid, a a soccer team. Um, Like there's some kind of media tie in probably just to grow in Spain. Yeah. Like these are not good looks, you know? Um, I think, you know, if I have an issue with Spotify, it's that like I literally, there's no way for me to communicate with them, but I've been in their offices before. You know, I, I had, I took a meeting once with like, me and maybe a half dozen other indie label people and Troy Carter, the ex-Lady Gaga manager. Mm -hmm. And I literally credit that meeting because I got his email. He's like, email me. And I think I emailed him about a specific Christmas song we were releasing that year. And what do you know? Like that Christmas song ended up on a bunch of playlists and is a nice little money earner every year for this band. This is the kit that we worked with. And I'm like, but literally that's one of my only returned emails from a person on the Spotify team in my career. And I've been doing this for 20 years. Like I feel like I have the standing to be able to have some line of communication with that company and you go to their office and you feel like you're in the New York times. Like it's very nice. You're like, you guys have really awesome snacks in the snack bar. Like, can you really just like make it so that me as a label that's been doing something for 20 years can find a way to like talk to you?
0: Yeah. How about um, nice snacks, but what about an email reply? How's totally. That sound? <laughs> like, and look,
1: I know that's not easy. As someone that struggles with email and the amount that comes in, like I get it. I get that it's hard. A lot of people, there's a lot of hungry mouths here, but I'd say Spotify, like there's an egotism there. Yeah, and I don't want to be caught dissing Spotify. It's my biggest source of income for for my record label. So it's like, I can't complain. Like, you've done an amazing thing, but... How much of it is... How much of it
0: is... I mean, too, just as you're talking, it feels to me a little bit, too, like Spotify, there's some naivete there, too. Like, they didn't realize how massive they were going to become in such a short amount of time. And, like, how much of this is them playing catch up a little bit, like trying to figure out what their model is in real time. And then seeing an opportunity like Rogan come up, it's like, well, of course we're going to, why not? You know. And then they're playing catch up again the next week because all of a sudden that they didn't realize that paying one artist $100 million for the first time, really publicly having paid for the rights to something that the, the repercussions were going to come from that, they just didn't expect.
1: Clearly. Yeah, I mean, I, it's hard for me to ascribe too much naivete to people that are like, you know – there's been exposés about how Spotify in some ways is more of a like venture capital company than it is a music company. And it's more of an audio company like, and I, than it is a music company. And I think they would admit, they even kind of advertise that. I mean, that is like X talking point when he's talking to Wall Street and the investor communities that we are dominating audio. We're not dominating music. But I think it's hard to ascribe naivete when there's like alternate routes. I mean, I really do appreciate the band camp Route That like, you know, there's some investment there, but they've been profitable for years. Spotify's never been profitable. I think, I think a lot of people in the world of finance, and that are operating the worlds of like capital, you almost have to give up your claims to naivete by taking that I think it's like it's whatever, it's like the tainted chalice, or something, you know, like, like, once you're sorted for a lifetime, there's a new form of responsibility to the community that like will be expected of you. And maybe because you did not come up as a community thing, you came up as an organization talking to the investor class. Mm -hmm. Like you don't really understand that you're culpable also to the community as well as to your investors, whatever. If musicians could use an intro to business and accounting and community class, I feel like, Anyone going through an MBA investment round like you kind of have to go into like a community sensitivity class
0: like yeah. I mean, yeah it feels to me one of the ways that in terms of how Bandcamp has sort of its uh front facing sort of perception or image is is a little is feels more artist uh, focused and more artist driven I mean that was the the Bandcamp Fridays or whatever that happened they're still going or, on which are amazing like, yeah it it feels like feels more like a healthy investment that somebody like you put your thing on Bandcamp. when all ships rise, everybody gets a windfall. Everybody gets dividends on some level. And it's like, if Spotify had a hundred million dollars for Joe Rogan, they could have given him 50 and said, Hey, I tell you what, if all of, if everybody's, if your stream, if you had at least 10 streams this month, like everybody gets a windfall and it's going to be the same. Joe Rogan's going to get the same $150 that you're getting. Because, like, you know, I mean, just you're talking like,
1: almost like the guaranteed income model of Spotify or, or something or like that. Or just
0: like, when we hit a certain threshold, we're going to split yeah. our stock, and everybody's going to get a little bit more. You know, like to me, that feels a little bit, and that's a that to me is the that's the bummer about the Neil Young sort of little piece of information. It's like he got he put his music in an investment firm, like an investment firm bought his music, and yep. so it's easy for him to take his entire catalog off because he's not he's not relying on that windfall anymore. And it's like, if Spotify had been like, tell you what, Neil Young, every time one of your things gets streamed, we're going to give a percentage of that to every artist on the platform. You know, like there's, like you said, there's other roads, there's other ways to skin this cat where it's a zero sum game, (laughs) you know, either Neil Young's all here or all Rogan's all here. Can't have them both. I'm like, I'm sorry. Do you make those decisions? Do you, do you, do you walk into a grocery store and buy stuff there only if they refuse to take all the Goya products off the shelf? Yeah. I mean, Neil Young's not a sustainable way to go through life. Books, you go to a bookstore. If they sell Mein Kampf, are you just going to burn the place down?
1: Yeah, Neil Young shouldn't be considered a. uh, He's not, I mean, he's more of a trickster figure, you know? Like, I mean, he, like, there's always an angle that he's working. He's of that, like, 60s generation that were both hippies and opportunists, you know? Like, you know, like, people were coming after him a little bit, like that it was some kind of uh, hypocrisy to be like, promoting Amazon, you know, that you could get four months free on Amazon. And I'm like, no, that's like, that's his deal. Like that's part of the cal there was a multi-layered calculation that went into him taking his music on Spotify. And part of it could have been maybe people will discover my Neil Young archives. Cause he has his own little like mm-hmm. bandcamp like streaming service. I mean if if he was really doing the community generosity move he would have announced that he was part of the next Bandcamp Friday, you know, and suddenly his catalog would have been up there and like, it would have shown a spotlight on this, you know, Bandcamp is really cool for our communities, our niche communities, but it is not a mainstream, you know, it's like 1% of the, of the income of Spotify. It's a very different business. You know, it's the difference between like a bodega around the corner and Whole Foods, you know, and maybe that's even over dramatizing (laughs) it, but not by much. point,
0: Point taken. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like they're in different businesses and like, I was, I actually had some like small hope that like someone on Neil Young's team would have been like, no, there's this thing going on, on this thing called Bandcamp. And like you would kill, I'm sure you would have an amazing day on Bandcamp and it would expose all the people going to download stuff there would just bump into other things. Mm-hmm. You know, whether like it was recommending Sufjan Stevens to you then it would have been amazing, and but that's not like that's not his game. Like you
0: downloaded right. Neil Young, you should listen to Antney from Antney and the Johnsons. Totally, like like, like <laughs> that would like that, that that is not that crazy of a connection to make, you know?
1: But like yeah, that would have been the like community oriented thing. But Neil Young's not part of that. Look, everyone that he's ever been in community with has this like incredible love hate relationship. I thought it was beautiful that Joni Mitchell was like, I'm standing with Neil, where I'm like. Have you guys hung out in the same room since the (laughs) 70s? I guess I saw them at some, they were at a Music Cares benefit. I think they were seated together. But like, you know, all the Crosby, Stills, and Nash people kind of like have this very weird relationship to Neil Young. Neil Young is very much the like, I'm going to smack you around and then I'm going to bring you on stage with me kind of relationship with all of his collaborators. But that's like, that's Neil Young. Like, he's not... A totally beautiful soul you know he is a beautiful soul but not a totally beautiful soul you know and
0: I think that's the the thing that bothers me I think when we talk about and again this is like, like the irrational part of me in general why I react so strongly to this is like if the if the litmus test for being allowed to have your stuff on Spotify or Apple or YouTube or on a in a bookstore is that you are a purely beautiful soul it's gonna be very smart bare shelves yeah I mean, sport. and it's like that that it just it strikes a little fear in my heart a little bit when when the when we're looking at somebody you know i can have i can feel a way I feel about Neil Young putting his foot down, but it's like listen, he has the right to do that, and i don't you know it's not right for me to harbor an ill will towards him it's also not I don't believe that I should harbor an ill will towards Joe Rogan because he had a guest on I don't like you know like, yeah, and there's so anyway, that's it's mainly an irrational reaction to me, and I, from, from me, and I don't have a like, I'm not, I don't, I'm not like Joe Rogan or Bust. Like, it's just I do a podcast that is unscripted and unedited, and I, when I saw the montage of Joe Rogan saying the N word, it's like I, I haven't said the N word on this podcast. Don't plan on it. Have no desire to. Yeah. But you could take, I have 300 podcasts up now. You could totally. cobble, you could cobble together something that makes me look like Adolf Hitler. Yeah. If you wanted to. And that, I, I, what I saw, I was like, listen, I'm losing money on this podcast. And if that's my fate is to be publicly scorned with a montage and I'm losing money every time I do this, like, fuck that. Yeah.
1: I, I think the Bodega Whole Foods thing is like a good metaphor to keep working on or like, the, you know, the gods battling. It's just like what whatever. They have different responsibilities and they're waking up to that. I mean, I've – you know, frankly, I can go back to when I did a zine. Back in the days when I first got into this, The the – the whole foods of the world was Tower Records back in the day because Tower Records would distribute zines. And there was a moment with my zine where like I got accepted into Tower Records and I went from like printing a 100 copies and getting it to my friends to like, I think the minimum buy-in of of, of Tower was like 700 or 1500 copies. And they'd put like two copies in the magazine rack of like all the stores all around the country. And it was like, well, I I have to have this professionally printed. I can't do it on the photocopier at my mom's office anymore. And I think you have these moments where you like enter this big arena. I have a friend that is an artisanal chocolate maker in, uh, in Williamsburg or Greenpoint. And he got brought into Whole Foods and distributed by them one day. And it just like overnight changes your business. And you have to change how you're doing things. And I just think this is the moment... Where Joe Rogan's re- and Spotify both are realizing, wow, that wasn't just a cool headline to bring attention to our service. A hundred million dollars, like there is a whole area of responsibility that we need to bring to this, and this is the wake-up call. And again, like I, like, I, like I don't your think- analogy,
0: I like your analogy yeah. of the artisanal chocolate. Like I, I think it is like Joe Rogan. I think has. Has purposely been DIY. He has a fact checker with him, Jamie, who, who, when there is a dispute, he looks it up and often Uh Joe's like, Oh yeah, I'm wrong. And he's been with him from the beginning. Will this Um, be in real time on the show or will this be like, yeah, wow. Yeah. He's in real time on the show. Um, And, but it's not, he's not DIY anymore. This isn't in his basement. And I think just, you know, it's helpful for me to think about that too. Like I'm less DIY on my podcast than I was in 2015. Yeah. I'm not making any money on it, but I'm better at it. And so that I have to, I can't just be the bumbling fool I was five years ago or six years ago when I started, I have to be conscious of how of constantly improving and getting better at things. So I think that's a, I think that's a really good point And it's one that I, I hadn't thought of before, um, in that particular way. So, um, but Alec, I, I, I just, we, I have robbed you of an hour and 15 minutes of your life and I've really enjoyed this. Uh, and just in the interest of context for for everybody who's listening to this, neither one of us is 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 a is a is a like Rogan fan or a Neil young fan like we're just talking through these issues and thinking out loud and you know you've changed my mind already just an hour and fifteen minutes on some stuff so i hope I hope if somebody watches this, they see that that change happening
1: if I have optimism in the world it's that there's more people that are like you and me. Like when you first asked me, I was like, Oh God, am I going to like <laughs> be put in the Neil Young defense point of view? Like that's terrifying. I don't want to defend Neil Young. I wouldn't want it. Like having managed tomorrow, I'm always like, yeah, I wouldn't want to manage him. I'd have to say, sorry, way, way too many times in a day for me to be comfortable. I think there's way more people in the world that are like, on the nuanced side that we're, that we've brought out. And I think a lot of mass media, is trying to say that's not the case. But I think it actually is the case.
0: Yeah, I, I think it is too. And it, it's I'm having a little bit less anxiety about it every day. I mean, I felt yesterday actually was a big moment because I, I I do feel a little bit like I trust the media still. Like I want to. Like when the New York Times prints something, I want to be like, you know, somebody's thought more about this than I have, right? Yeah. Uh, or see, even with CNN or MSNBC, I just got to assume like somebody who thinks about the news all day must have – be more nuanced or more slick than I am on this stuff. But there was a headline yesterday in, this, in CNN that they changed later on, but the headline was Joe Rogan's use of the N word is the, is a, is a new January 6th moment. And I was like, that is the craziest thing I've ever read. So all right, maybe, maybe I'm not wrong All the time. Maybe it doesn't mean you distrust the media all the time, but maybe you, you understand that there's another, there's a human being writing that headline on the other end who has their own biases, their own bullshit. Yeah.
1: Or who is like, like, okay, I know how to write something that'll get clicked on. I mean, honestly, I think that's the biggest problem with our culture right now is too many people that are ambitious. That's the driver. Not like, how can I come up with a nuanced take? It's like, how can I get clicked on? And it just messes up all the conversations.
0: Yeah. Well, when I saw the headline, I had a moment of rage and then it quickly was overtaken by a moment of relief where I felt like, okay, I'm not crazy. Like this is actually happening. You know, the problem though is like, if they're doing that with Joe Rogan, then they've got to be doing it with Afghanistan and Ukraine and Putin. And like, like, like that is what scares me a little bit. Like if they're that lazy about something that's really easy, like calling Joe Rogan, a former comedian. It's like, like he's still, he's touring right now. Like you don't like little tiny details like that. It's like when you, when you flesh that out to larger geopolitical issues, like I just am like, Oh my God,
1: I guess we're not going to solve them on this podcast. No. (laughs) Sorry. uh, Sorry. If you were coming for us to give you the solution, we messed
0: up. We didn't do it right. You know, Alec, this has been really great. I really appreciate your time. And I hope that we can hang in person sooner than later. And if there's any, ever anything else you want to chat about, um, yep. you know, you're, you're more than welcome to be a guest here. Yep. And so I'll leave it at any final work well, just to wrap up, where can people, if they want to learn more about, you know, the work you're doing work, my thing,
1: uh, at Brassland is the social media thing. So B R A S S L A N D. It's a, it's a weird name. We don't explain it, but it's there. And that's again, another podcast. Um, I'm at, um, I use my three names, Alec Hanley Bemis, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, you'll, uh, well, that'll probably be in the podcast title. So that's where my stuff is. Uh, there's introductory playlists that are pretty easily accessible where it's like, you can go from so percussion to Hannah Georges to like early the national music, mm-hmm. um, and hear the breadth of what, what we've done. And, uh, yeah, that would be my recommendation. I think, I think we present ourselves not too obscurely on the web. So.
0: All right. That's there. Well, thank you for that. Alex, stay healthy. I hope your shoulder feels better. We didn't get into that, but um, I, hope, I hope you're on the mend. And uh, stay healthy, happy, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right, bye. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum. Liquiddrum.com down in Waco, Texas. Uh, my good friend Todd Meehan runs an amazing percussion company down there. Great merch, great content. Check them out. Liquiddrum.com. Also, Kyle Dunleavy, dunleavypans.com, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y-Pans.com. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the steel drums that I perform and teach on, uh, in so percussion as well as at NYU and Princeton. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing tuner, builder, um, just a really nice guy, very dependable. Check him out. If you are interested at all in steel pan advocacy, uh, want to learn more about the goings-on uh, in pan in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. My good friend Kendall Williams, uh, Jerry Guy, Trisha Guy, and uh, Arisha John run an amazing organization called paninmotion.com. Check them out. And finally, Alejandre Mirage runs an amazing uh, clothing apparel company in Brooklyn that is steel pan-centric. You can check him out at mango, chow, chow Clothing.com. I own a bunch of his shirts. They're amazing, very stylish, uh, beautiful, beautifully made. Check them out, mangochowclothing.com. Okay, hope you're well. Talk to you soon. Bye.